If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Revelation. Maybe this is one of the first times that you've been at church. You don't even know books of the Bible or maybe you're not familiar with that. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. This is the last book of the Bible. And if you're just joining us this morning, we've been in Revelation for, you know, about three weeks or so now. And I think it's helpful as we look at Revelation chapter 2 this morning, I think it's going to be helpful to remind ourselves kind of where we've been so far, okay? Because we've, we've really seen two things as, as we've uh, been through Revelation. And the first thing that we've seen is Revelation is apocalyptic. It's apocalyptic. And in fact, that's what the word revelation means. It's the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revelation, okay? And apocalyptic you know, when we hear that term today, it's, it's not how a first century Jew would have heard that term. Today, when we hear it, you know, we think about doomsday predictions about the distant future, right? About how the world's going to end, things like that. And really, the only people who benefit from that are publishing houses and movie studios. Because for, for a first century audience, that's not how they would have understood apocalyptic. Apocalyptic for a first century reader was a type of literature. It was a way of writing. So a first century Jew would have picked up the revelation of John and they would have read just the very first line of this book and they would have read the revelation of Jesus Christ or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ and they would have known, oh, I know what this is. This is a highly symbolic prophecy that's supposed to give me God's perspective on my life today. That's what apocalyptic means. It's God's perspective on our current situation. So tonight's the Super Bowl, all right? It's America's holiday. <laughs> it's America's holiday. And you know when you watch football, right, you're always watching it from the side. You, and you could probably only see about 25 yards. And a guy's going from the right-hand side of the field and a team's marching down trying to score on the team that's guarding the left side of the field, right? But you notice sometimes during the game, because such little amounts of the field are covered, that sometimes what happens is the quarterback drops back and he throws a deep ball downfield, about 50 yards downfield. And the wide receiver is wide open. He makes the catch and he scores a touchdown. And you're left wondering, how on earth did that wide receiver get so open? And so on the replay, you know how they have the camera that goes kind of above, the, behind the quarterback? And from that perspective, you get to then see what the commander of that team, the quarterback, gets to see. So you notice, oh, that cornerback fell down and it left that wide receiver wide open and that's why he threw to him and that's why he scored that touchdown. It gives us a different vantage point and that is the best way to understand apocalyptic. It wants us to see the world from the perspective of the one who controls it all, Jesus. Okay, or you can, maybe, maybe this is a little bit more practical of an example. My kids and I, we just uh, watched Aladdin for the first time. Now I loved Aladdin, my favorite movie growing up, right? but it was a little bit uh, above their emotional maturity. So about halfway through the movie, I could see that they're really ridden with anxiety and they're wondering, how is this all gonna turn out? And I can just imagine their perception. They're thinking Jafar's in control and he's gonna defeat Aladdin and the genie and he's gonna take over Agrabah and he's gonna enslave all those who don't follow him. And so as a father, what I do is I can pause the movie and say, hey guys, I actually know where this is going. Jafar is not going to win. The genie and Aladdin are going to conquer. Don't worry. Don't worry. Guys, that's what apocalyptic intends to do. It wants us to see not only the world from God's perspective, but God wants us to see our current situation now, 21st century, through the lens of the final outcome. 
all right? God wants us to see our world now through the lens of the final outcome. And we saw this last week, right? Remember, Jesus was writing a letter to the church in Ephesus, and he gave them a promise. He said, to those who conquer, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And now that's a reference back to Genesis chapter 2, but it's also a reference forward to Revelation 22, where God gives us this promise of a new heavens and a new earth. And in the middle of that city, do you know what stands there? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree there are for the healing of the nations. Do you see that? That's what apocalyptic is meant to do. It's meant to see the world from the perspective of God with our current situation in mind. So Revelation's apocalyptic, but it's also a letter. It's the second thing we've noticed. It's a letter. Remember, that's how the book opened. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. It's a letter. Meaning apocalypse or the apocalypse of Jesus was meant to be a circular letter. One that would go to these various churches in and around Asia Minor, which is today modern day Turkey. So with that in mind, realize it is a specific letter to a specific people with specific concerns and specific troubles. And so that means in order to understand it well, we have to understand it as that first church would have understood it specifically. Okay? But notice it's to seven churches, and we've already talked about this, but seven is that number which in Jewish culture signified wholeness and completion, like God created in six days and rested on the seventh, right? It's John's way of saying, in a subtle way, I'm writing this letter not just to the first church, but the universal church, the church throughout all time and all places and all circumstances. And if, if you have like a camera, if you're a camera expert, you know that there are different types of lenses that you can put on a camera, right? You put a, like a zoom lens on a camera and you can go in really tight on an object or you can put on kind of a wide angle lens and get an appreciation for like a panoramic view. So Jesus wants us to read apocal- this apocalyptic letter with that camera in mind. If you want to understand it, you have to zoom in to the specific concerns of the churches that he's writing to. But you can also zoom out and see how that specific situation applies to our life today and get the broader picture. Does that make sense? Have I lost anybody, by the way? Okay, I've lost only one person. We're good. All right. I like the way Greg Beale puts it. He says, the focus of Revelation is on how the church is to conduct itself in the midst of an ungodly world. The events of the book deal with the real life situation of the church in every age, not just of the end time future. And so for the Ephesian church last week, we saw that God wanted the Ephesian church to repent. And the situation that he's going to address with the Smyrnan church here is this church is a church under pressure, a pressure to conform, a pressure to compromise, to give in, to assimilate to the culture around them instead of maintaining allegiance and faith in Jesus. And so that's where we're going to pick up. We're in Revelation chapter 2, and if you have your Bibles, you can read along. We're going to begin in verse 8 through verse 11, but this is God's word, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are actually a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, 
The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are the first and the last. You're the one who died and came to life. And we need your help now that you would give us your spirit, that you would teach us from this letter that seems ancient but applies to our life today. Jesus, teach us. We know you're the one who's worthy and you're the one who can speak into these things. You're the only one who has the right vantage point for that. So we ask that you would help us focus now, that you would help us open our hearts to this message and you would help us respond in an appropriate way. We ask that in your name, to your glory, amen. So there's a story of a man that I heard recently. His name is Auguste Landmacher. I don't know if I'm saying that right, by the way. Auguste Landmacher, but he was a German who lived in 1936 Nazi Germany. He was married to a woman. Her name was Irma Eckler, who was ethnically Jewish, but practiced her religion as a, as a general Protestant. And Landmesser, nobody really knew him, but he has a very infamous photo and it's this photo in 1936 Germany. And in this photo, there's a large group of people, hundreds and hundreds of people, and they're all crowded together. And these are all workers on a, a, na a naval ship for the Nazi army. And they've just built this ship that they're about to commission out to sea. And one of the traditions and one of the rituals that they would use is that as they were commissioning this ship out to sea, they all gave the Heil Hitler salute. And so you look at this picture and every single person is indicating, I follow the Fuhrer. I'm a member of Nazi Germany. I follow Adolf Hitler. But then there's something really interesting as you go and look at each person individually face by face, you notice in the upper right hand corner, you notice that there's one person with his arms folded, smiling, refusing to give the sign. And that ended up being Auguste Landmacher. And later that year, because Landmacher and Eckler were facing such pressure and persecution, they tried to flee to Denmark, but they were apprehended. And ultimately, Landmesher was charged and found guilty in 1937 of, quote, dishonoring the race under Nazi racial laws. He and his wife would die three years later, all because they refused to conform. All because they refused to assimilate to the culture around them. And I want you to think about it, right? Think about it. It would have been the easiest thing in the world. It would have been so easy. Everyone's doing it, August. Everyone's doing it. Just salute, go along. You don't even have to mean it or believe it. You can have the same beliefs, just don't make them public. You can even cross your fingers as you give the salute. Why lose everything that you hold dear? Why lose everything? If you would just conform, give into the pressure, why resist when it'll cost you everywhere? cost you everything. After all, everyone is doing it. And see, the church in Smyrna is facing a similar situation. They're a church under pressure to conform, to go along with the culture around them. And we, we can resonate with that, can't we? We can resonate with that. An author I read frequently, he put it this way. He said, conformity to the world and the culture around us, rather than conformity to Jesus, is an ever-present danger facing followers of Jesus. He says this happens through several avenues. In our culture, it happens primarily through entertainment by allowing what we consume, see, hear, and read to subtly shape our understanding of the world. Another avenue is education 
by being influenced too much by thinkers and opinions because they are new and progressive rather than true. We can conform through our friendships, wanting to be approved by people and accepted into their embrace, even at the expense of our faith. But most often, it simply happens through apathy, through apathy, neglecting God and simply going with the flow. And oftentimes, right, conformity can be pretty subtle, right? We don't even notice that it's happening. In fact, uh, the philosopher Aristotle, he had a word for this. He said, we are social animals. We're social creatures. And what he meant by that is that we are creatures, And we are creatures that are made for society. And because of that, we can't help but ingest some of the things of the culture and the surroundings around us. And you might notice this, you know, I've I've preached up here quite a few times now. And in my family, we have a really bad habit of bobbing our head when we talk. All right. So maybe you've noticed me doing this. I bob my head when I talk every once in a while, especially when I'm making an emphatic point. And I don't think I was born with that. I think I was in this culture, in the Neelan family, and I started bobbing my head when I talk. Or I've been here a year and a half now, and I've conformed a lot to Deer Creek Church. I've been working with Dwayne for so long now that I'm starting to lose my hair. So, <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, Dwayne. I asked Dwayne first service if I could still work here. And here I am, second service, so. The point is this, conformity can be subtle. It can be imperceptible, right? We're kind of like frogs. You've heard about frogs, right? You boil water, grab a frog, throw it into that boiling water, and immediately it'll jump out of the water. But if you put a frog in tepid water and just incrementally start to turn up the heat, all of a sudden the temperature rises and it goes unnoticed to the point where the frog will eventually wear down its ability to jump out, and it'll ultimately mean its death. And friends, Ian Paul, he's a commentator on Revelation. He says, this is why we need Revelation and we need this letter to Smyrna because it shows us very clearly how to be alert to the context we are in and how to both engage with and stand up to the pressures of our culture, how to live courageously in an inhospitable climate. So Jesus, picking up this letter to the church in Smyrna, how we're gonna understand this text this morning is I just wanna go back to English high school. English in high school, okay? Remember how you always talked about the five W's? When you want to understand a text, you simply talk about the five W's, who, what, where, when, why, and how. And this time, we're just going to look through this letter and look at three of those, who, why, and what. Who wrote this letter? Why was it being written? And what was Jesus' solution for it? Okay, so who, why, and what. Let's look at the who. Who wrote this letter? We see it beginning in verse eight that Jesus says, he's sending this as a message to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And it's interesting how Jesus addresses himself here. Notice he says these words. He says, I am the first and the last who died and came to life. And now that's extremely important to understand that Jesus is making some pretty staggering claims here. Okay? See, what Jesus is doing here is he is taking Old Testament language, language about God, the God of Israel, the God who created all things. And what Jesus is doing is he is applying it to himself. See, often, maybe you've done this, you've read through the Gospels, maybe you've read just one Gospel, and it's quite frustrating that Jesus never, he never really just comes right out and says it. He never says, yep, I'm God. But he does things like, you know, walking on water. He does things like heal people who are terminally sick. He raises people from the dead. He tells people their sins are forgiven, which, by the way, God is the only one who has a prerogative to do that. And we're left to draw the conclusion about who Jesus is. And we say, well, you know, he acts like God. He, he seems to have power like God. He speaks with the authority of God. He must be God. 
But here, Jesus is being extremely explicit about who he is. He says, I am the first and the last, meaning I am the eternal God of the universe. All of creation owes its existence to me. Every star, every creature, every mountain, I preceded them all and I will endure after they're gone. Do you see that? The first and the last. And that is super important to remember because we often, right, this is the case, we understand Jesus is the son of God. We've all kind of heard that terminology and we're inclined to think therefore that, okay, well, there's this hierarchy. We got God, the father, he's number one, God, the son, he's number two, and then God, the Holy Spirit, and we don't really know what to do with him, but we'll call him number three, right? But Jesus is saying here, no, no, there's no hierarchy. There's no hierarchy. There's no order or ranking. The way God describes himself in the Old Testament is the way Jesus describes himself in the new. God the Father is one. God the Son is one. God the Holy Spirit is one. They are one God eternally existing, one God, one being, eternally existing in three persons. So when Jesus addresses the church here in Smyrna, he's not addressing them as another creature, right? With good advice on how to pull through a difficult circumstance. No, Jesus is addressing the church in Smyrna as the eternal God of the universe, one who speaks with all authority and power. And we get authority, don't we? Here's a prime example. Everybody get on the floor. Everyone get on the floor. No one? (laughs) You realize I have no authority, right? (laughs) You realize that. Now, now, hold on. I guarantee, I guarantee, here's what happens. A person coming in a blue suit walks through the back doors here wearing a Littleton PD badge and he says, get on the floor. I'd imagine you all would do so, right? Because you realize that with that badge comes a vested authority, a vested authority. And Jesus is saying here, I am the first and the last. Who is speaking to you but the God of the universe? And We see why this church needs that message. We see it pretty clearly beginning in verse nine. This is the why. Why is Jesus addressing this church? In verse nine, Jesus addresses them by saying, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. So Jesus, you see, he writes here for two reasons. First, to address their present situation, which seems to be that they're undergoing some sort of tribulation, which just means pressure. They're feeling pressure to conform from the outside. In high school, uh, the only subject I was good at was history. So my sophomore year, they asked me to join in on AP US history. AP just means advanced placement. And I was taking AP US history and I quickly realized, wow, this is, this is a pretty sweet gig. You get a lot of privileges and protections that all the other kids don't really get. So the first thing I noticed is that teachers trusted you, which was a poor, uh, poor thing to do for a guy like me. So you can miss classes occasionally and they wouldn't call home because they just figured, oh, he must be busy. He must have something better going on. You, which I didn't, by the way. I think I had 47 absences. <laughs> you could go to the bathroom without asking. That was a good privilege. You could go to the cafeteria and buy bagels. That was a good privilege, privileges. And for a guy like me, that was just enough rope to hang myself, by the way. So the next semester, I, I like to say that I just decided I'd go back into the generic history track, but I got kicked out, right? 
And I quickly noticed they didn't enjoy the same benefits that I did. The, the, the teachers didn't trust me. I couldn't go get a bagel. I couldn't leave whenever I wanted. And there's a similar situation going on here in Smyrna because, see, for these earliest Christians, for a while they had special privileges and protections from the Roman government because it was assumed this is just a different expression of Judaism. It's just a different expression of what it means to be a Jew. And all Jews during that time, they weren't forced to worship Caesar as God. They could merely honor him as the emperor. They didn't have to worship Roman gods either. They could remain exclusively monotheists. And they could give sacrifices in just in honor of the emperors, not to the worship of the emperors. And for a while, Christians actually had this same privilege. But over time, it quickly became clear that Christianity was not exactly the same type of religion that Jews of old were practicing. In fact, we get a kind of a glimpse of this from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. And he's encouraging the church there about what it means to be truly a follower of God. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And he would go on to say this. He'd say, For no one is a Jew who is merely one inwardly, or sorry, outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So in other words, what Paul is saying here is that true Judaism, true following of God, is not a matter of your ethnic or biological descent. And I think we could say today too, a Christian is not a person who simply grows up in a Christian household. There are no special rights and privileges just because your parents are Christians. There are no special rights and privileges either because you grow up in a, quote, Christian culture either. Nor was it about whether you receive circumcision, which was the sign of God's covenant. Instead, Paul is saying that true Judaism, to be a true child of God, to be in covenant with God and to know that you have eternal life and forgiveness of sins was determined by whether you possessed the spirit of Christ and believed in his son as the only salvation for sinners. That's how you became truly a Jew. That's how you truly became a follower of God and found yourself in the family of God. And it's interesting because, because of this, Christians no longer fell under the umbrella of Judaism. And because of that, they were being cut out of the Roman economic system. That's why Jesus says that you are in poverty. And what is more, they're being cut out of the temple life of the Jewish synagogue and they're being slandered by the people who should believe in Jesus in the first place. So there's this pressure, right? Just, just give up and say Jesus in your heart, but just don't say it out loud. That's all you have to do. Just say, I'm a Jew. I'm a normal following Jew. And you can be back in and find economic security. That's what the pressure they were feeling. Or just go with the flow. Honor Caesar. Don't say Jesus is Lord. Believe that in your heart. Make that a private thing. Don't make it a public thing. And everybody will, will let you back in. You can find security. Why lose everything? And Jesus' message to the Smyrnans is clear here, isn't it? He says this, he says, things are not the way they appear. Those who are rich now because of their sacrifice to the world are actually eternally poor. They're eternally poor. Those who are poor now because they refuse to sacrifice to the world are eternally rich. And, And you might say, well, that's just a good turn of phrase. No, friends, that's the way it is. 
that is the way it is. So Jesus' message is things are not the way they appear. And it's interesting, you know, commentators, when they look really closely at Revelation, they notice that the titles Jesus uses at the beginning of these seven letters that he's writing to these churches in Asia Minor, he's saying these titles used are closely tied to the message that he's about to bring them. So in verse eight, when Jesus addressed to the church, remember he said he's the eternal God, the first and the last. But did you notice he didn't stop there? He continued, he said, I am the one who died and came to life. It's Jesus' way of saying things are not as they appear. When the Son of God, Jesus, who was truly God, took on flesh and became man by the birth of the Virgin Mary, when that happened, the world and their response to him was not embrace. It was not crowning him as their king, and it wasn't showering him with praise and worship. Rather, their response was crucify him, shame him and mock him and slander him. See, Jesus, even the eternal God of the universe, became poor and became a man of no account. And he's saying, yeah, that's the way it is. The eternal God of the universe came in in flesh to save sinful flesh. And so Jesus' response to the Smyrnans here, things are not as they appear, just as I, the eternal God of the universe, the first and the last, became poor and was slandered and endured tribulation By people I came to save, the same thing is true about you. You look like you're in poverty now, enduring slander, and you have been cast off from society, but you are the true Israel. You are my true children. You are citizens in the kingdom of God. I love how one pastor put it. He said, you know, if Jesus and early Christians were a modern day rock band, they would be Motley Crue. I love that. I love that. Because they are just a no good, weak, powerless, and poor group of people who have nothing really to provide to the world. How great is that? In fact, that was one of the earliest criticisms of Christianity. Did you know that? That Christianity was weak and it was for weak people, for the poor and the powerless. And the same criticism happens today. In fact, one famous quarterback said such the same thing. He said, Christianity is for weak people, people who need an intellectual and psychological crutch to get through life. It's for people who can't cope with the hard realities of life and they have to look beyond themselves for help to get through life. (laughs) Well, yeah, (laughs) yeah. And if that's not you, I would say give it five years or 10 or 20, but you will soon come to this realization that no, you can't cope. You might think you're intellectually strong enough. You might think you're physiologically strong enough, but friends, there is one true thing about history and is that we will all die and nobody is strong enough in that moment. So yes, in fact, Jesus said that that is the only requirement to coming to him. Do you realize that? That's the only requirement to coming to him. It's the realization that you are weak, you are helpless, and that you cannot do life without the existence of God. Jesus says, yep, that's the entry fee. That's the entry fee. I love the way Alistair McGrath put it. He said, if you have a broken leg, you need a crutch. If you're ill, you need medicine. That's just the way things are. Followers of Jesus understand this about human nature. It is damaged and broken, wounded and disabled by sin. That's just the way things are. And friends, that is the primary mark of a follower of Jesus, a person who realizes I cannot please God on my own. I am not worthy. I can't live a life that's good enough to be pleasing to God. I cannot live satisfied apart from God. 
I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can't help myself. I can't make all of my relationships work. I can't make my children love me. I can't get rid of my fears, my anxieties, and my depression. I can't make up for the wrong that I've done. I can't find forgiveness. We are people who are in need of Jesus. We are fallen, sinful, and broken, in need of a Jesus who brings forgiveness, salvation, and help in everything. And Jesus is saying, yep, things are going just as you've expected if you come to that realization, as these people in Smyrna did. Okay? And Jesus' encouragement to Smyrna then and to us today is, I love this. I love this. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and your slander. I know it. Because Jesus himself entered into it. Jesus himself entered into it. He actually came down. The God of heaven came down and entered into it. There's a story in 1962, which happened in New York City. It's the story of Kitty Genovese. She was actually being brutally murdered at 2.30 a.m. in the streets of New York City in Kew Gardens. And after she was screaming out, help me, help me, help me, crying out to anybody who would hear her, she quickly realized that nobody was going to come to her defense. And even though she was screaming this out and the man who was actually taking her life ran and hid around a corner for a little while to see if anybody else would come down, once he realized nobody's coming down, he came back out and finished the work that he had began. And when newspaper reporters and police investigators came by and they did interviews, they found out that 38 people heard the screams, but nobody came down. 38 people. Nobody wanted to risk their own lives. Friends, Jesus came down. He became a man. He took on flesh. He endured our tribulation, our suffering, our poverty. He endured all of that, the pressure to conform. He even faced the onslaught of Satan so that we might know he knows, he knows, he knows it because it was all done for us. The Super Bowl is tonight, right? Now, I want you to imagine you go into a time machine and it brings you to 10 o'clock tonight and you see the San Francisco 49ers, who were the underdogs by one point, they covered the spread and they won, right? They won by 10 points. And then you re-enter the time machine and you come back to this present moment. Let me ask you, how many of us would go and call Las Vegas right after and put all of our money on the San Francisco 49ers? If you knew the end from the beginning, it would change how you live in the present, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? I don't know what the Bible says about gambling, by the way. It's, it's a little shaky on that. So, but that's not the point. The point is this, friends, the pressure to conform now can only be handled in the realization that Jesus came and he knows your suffering. He knows your tribulation and he promises you he's not only the one who died, he's the one who rose again. He did not stay dead. So your present tribulation now, friends, even though you want to conform now, you have to live for what's to come. So Jesus knows their present situation, but he knows things are about to ramp up. Verse 10. In verse 10, he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. So Jesus is saying simply here, your tribulation is about to ramp up. Your tribulation now is about to give way to more tribulation in the future. The devil 
is going to throw some of you in prison. And I find it remarkable, maybe you do too, about just how clearly Jesus talks about Satan, how clearly he talks about it. And the only conclusion that you can actually give when you read those words is that at least in Jesus' estimation, he says, there is a real spiritual and personal adversary to the work of God in the world and in the churches specifically. Which means that the threat to Christians today is not just the culture outside of our doors. It's not just the sin in our own hearts. It's actually the adversary of God himself, Satan. That's the threat. It's not just, quote, secular culture infiltrating the church, right? It's actually a real, breathing, personal adversary whom God calls Satan. And in verse 10, Jesus says, remember, what's his response? He says, do not fear. How can he say that? How can he say, do not fear? Well, he goes on to say that your tribulation is going to be temporary. It's temporary. That what you see now is not all that there is. It's temporary. It's 10 days, he says, which is a highly symbolic reference, not to the fact that it's a literal 10 days that people will be thrown into prison, but that there is a definitive end point. It's a definitive end point. It's Jesus' way of saying that the tribulation has an expiration date. And notice, Jesus also says something that we don't often give much attention to. He says there's a purpose to it. He's a purpose to the tribulation. He says it's that you may be tested. Meaning Jesus is actually using this imprisonment to test the faithfulness of the church in Smyrna. You can put it this way. What Jesus is saying is he is in control even over the work of the adversary, Satan, to test the faith of his followers. Jesus is in control of every square inch of everything that goes on and nothing happens without his express consent and will. And theologians have a term for this. They actually call it his sovereignty. His sovereignty, which means Jesus has absolute authority over everything in the cosmos. J.C. Ryle, he was a 19th century Anglican bishop. He put it this way. Nothing whatever, whether great or small, can happen to a believer without God's ordering permission. There is no such thing as chance, luck, or accident in the Christian worldview and journey through this world. God, Jesus, is sovereign even over the terrible things that happen in the world, even over Satan himself. And whenever I talk about this, this doctrine that scripture teaches here, I, my mind immediately goes to Ruby Miller. Ruby Miller was a friend of mine. She was also a student that I oversaw in our youth group when I was a, a pastor in Nashville. And when we were talking about this, I quickly realized that, you know, tears were welling up in her eyes. And I could tell this meant something personally to her. So I asked her, hey, Ruby, this seems to really be affecting you. And she said, really, actually, in, in anger, she said, what about my friend? What about my friend whose family's rejected him and who is suicidal? Are you saying that Jesus is in control of that and allows that? And if he's in control, why wouldn't he stop it? And if we're honest, friends, sometimes we have to say, we, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know why God allows depression or divorce. We don't know why he allows the death of loved ones. We don't know why he lets sin enter the world in the first place, even though we know he's not the author of sin. We don't know why he allows Satan to continue to do his work in the world. So we don't always know the reason why. 
But however, this is what I told Ruby and this is what I would tell you today. Friends, what gives you more comfort? The fact that Jesus, the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life again, that he is in control or that he doesn't have control? Which one gives you more comfort? Because here's the thing we know about Jesus. We might not understand his ways or his purposes. We don't always know why he allows sin or hurt or Satan, but we do know this. We know we can trust him and we know we can trust his character because Jesus himself was willing to be imprisoned. He was willing to be imprisoned and counted guilty so that sinners like us who are objectively guilty might find forgiveness of sins. We know that Jesus was willing to be accused by Satan and to endure his torment and his temptations and his pressure so that we might be free from the kingdom of darkness and be, kingdom, be citizens in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what Jesus did on the cross. So do we know why God allows certain things? No, but we do know that he's able to use the pressure and the tribulation of Satan, the pressure and tribulation of the sinfulness of human hearts and the pressure and tribulation of the Roman authorities, all to put his son on a cross so that we might find forgiveness and use it for good. So friends, we can trust Jesus because he himself was willing to endure it all in his life on the cross. We can trust this God. And, and, you know, if you're here this morning and maybe you're, maybe you're just even thinking, maybe you're thinking, yeah, there is a lot of this evil in the world. Friends, Christians don't, we're not, we're not emus. We don't stick our head in the sand when bad stuff happens, right? And we're not blind to the hard things that go on in the world. The, the difference lies in this. We have a God we know we can trust through it. My, my proposition to you would be to ask, do you have such a God? Do you have such a God? Okay, this is going to be my last point briefly. So we've seen who wrote this letter. It was Jesus, the eternal God, who died and came to life. We saw why he wrote it to address the tribulation of these Smyrnans and that they were experiencing and they were, what they were going to experience. And lastly, Jesus shows us what his solution is for the church in Smyrna. Now, I grew up golfing and uh, golfing is actually quite easy. Anybody think golfing's hard here? It, you, it's kind of technically hard, right? But really there's, there's four things you have to do in golf and it's pretty simple when you break it down. You have to just keep your head down. You keep your left arm straight or your right arm if you're left-handed, but you keep your left arm straight. You keep your firm, feet firm and you swing. That's pretty much it. 98% of golf is that. But that is not what you would believe if you picked up a golfing magazine, right? Golfing magazines will teach you everything from, okay, here's how you hit this shot. When you're in this lie, you, you know, hold the club a different way or you angle the club a different way. And then I guarantee you, if you read that golfing magazine and then go out to play a round of golf, you are going to shoot the worst round of golf in your life. I guarantee it. Because golf is remarkably simple. And Jesus' response to the Smyrna church is remarkably simple here. But it's not simplistic. It's not simplistic. Verse 10 he says two things, remarkably simple. The first is be faithful. Have faith, trust in Jesus. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So hear, hear, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So very simple, be faithful. Have trust in Jesus, place your faith in him, listen to him, even if it means your death. I love one pastor, he kind of put it comically. 
he says, you know, what this is like is Jesus is basically coming, he's coming to these, this church in Smyrna, he's, he's huddling them up, right? And he's going to give them a motivational speech. And he says, it's as if Jesus is huddling up his followers and saying, okay, here's our strategy. We have no money, no clout, no status, no buildings, and no soldiers. Things are going exactly as they're planned, okay? We'll tell them all that they're on the wrong track, that the Roman money, the power, the influence, all those slanderers, the collaborators, we'll tell them all, we'll tell them, turn back, you're on the wrong track. And when they hate us, and a lot of them will, when they call us names and throw us in a prison, even kill some of us, we won't fight back. We won't run away. We won't give in. We'll just keep loving them and trusting in me, okay? Okay? We will just keep inviting them to join their other side. That's the strategy. What do you think? What do you think? And, you know, it's kind of comical. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but that's Jesus' solution. Faith in him, trust in him, no matter what pressures there are to conform to the world around you and to give in on following Jesus, even if it means your life. And, and think about how the Smyrnans would have thought about this, right? They would have said, well, then who's going to witness to the rest of Smyrna? What if I lose my life, then who's going to tell my friends about Jesus? If I lose my life, who's going to tell my coworkers? Who's going to provide for them? Or if I die and I lose my life, who's going to care for my family? Jesus, you never thought about that, did you? Many of us think that way too. We think, well, if I, if I, if I die, if, if it costs me my life, then, then surely Jesus is going to be at a deficit. So I, I got to hold on to it at, at all costs. So I'll believe in Jesus in my heart, but I won't make it public if it means death because then I can still have influence in my sphere. I love the way a theologian, his name is Tertullian. He, he lived uh, in the early church. He said that the blood of the martyrs is actually the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, meaning the blood shed for people who have faith in Jesus and are faithful to him is not putting the kingdom of God at a deficit. In fact, it is the miracle grow that leads to the spread of the mission and kingdom of Jesus. And and that's not just early church propaganda, by the way. Emperors eventually found this out that that was true to be the case. In fact, one emperor in China put it this way. He said, Christianity is like a nail. The harder you hit it, the deeper it goes. And Jesus gives us this promise, this promise. He says, if you trust and believe in me, you will receive eternal life. What does he say? He says, you will receive a crown of life and you will not be touched by the second death. That's his promise. And it's a deeply ironic statement because Smyrna during that time was known as the crown of Asia. It's as if Jesus is saying, don't live for the crown that perishes. Culture will always tell you to conform. Culture might even call you a bigot. Culture might even call you antisocial. Friends, faith in Jesus Christ is the only entryway into the kingdom of God. It's the only entryway to eternal life. It's the only entryway to receive the crown of life. So Jesus says, be faithful unto death. It is worth it. I just want to close with, this story. It's the story of a traveling evangelist. He was moving through uh, the Soviet Union and he was kind of an underground evangelist seeking to, you know, evangelize people. That's what evangelists do. And the Roman, or, or sorry, the, uh, the Soviet Union wasn't very uh, kind on evangelists coming in and undermining the propaganda of the Soviet Union. So they get to uh, the border of what is now modern day Croatia 
And they're stopped by these authorities who tell them to get out of the car and they're going to question them and search the car. So as they're questioning this evangelist, he's kind of looking over his shoulder every once in a while because he notices that they're rummaging through the car. And he sees them pull out his bag, unzip it, and starts rummaging through all the items in it. And one of them pulls out a Bible. And so he starts flipping through it, looking at it curiously. And after laying eyes on it, he goes back to the evangelist and he stands in front of him and says, are you an American? And he said, of course I'm an American. Of course I'm an American. Here's my passport. I told you I'm an American. I'm not trying to, you know, trick anybody. I'm an American. And he says, you're not an American. And he said, yes, I promise you I'm an American. He's like, no, 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 you are not an American and, no, and neither am I. And I'm not a Croatian. I'm not a part of the Soviet Republic. And he opened to Philippians chapter three, verse 20, which says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Friends, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven set to receive an imperishable crown of glory and not be touched by the second death when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. And friends, there are many ways to conform, but Jesus reminds us there is one way, one entry point, one way to eternal life, and it's through faith in him for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God in his coming. So friends, trust in Jesus, listen to him. Do not fear the conformity. Do not fear the pressure. He's the first and the last, the one who died and came to life.